Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Ben Hoffman. Uh, He's in Australia. He's a principal research scientist with CSIRO, Australia's, I guess, national research agency, part of health and biosecurity. Uh, He's in Darwin, Australia, Northern Territory. And we're going to talk about ants and uh, related topics to them. So, Ben, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me about your research. What are you focusing on? So these days I predominantly focus on invasive species and how best we can manage them, but with a particular focus on ants. So I've always been specialised in ants, using them as biological indicators of the, uh, the health of the environment and sustainable land use, through to eradicating invasive species. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in all aspects of them, for example, how they become invasive in the first place, how they spread around the world, what parts of their biology contribute to their success and what we can do to to manage them better. And essentially my work is everywhere in the world but where I live and I spend a lot of time travelling around to different places uh, helping other people control the invasive species that they have and improving our global understanding uh, of managing these species. Well, ants are so small. How are they invasive anywhere unless they're helped by other creatures? I mean, I I guess they're flying ants, but... You know, how far can they travel on their own? Well, so the smaller you are, the easier it is for you to become invasive. So, I mean, you won't see elephants, for example, um, spreading all around the world because they're too big and it's too difficult for them. But small things can hide absolutely anywhere and everywhere. And ants are particularly good for all sorts of reasons, and particularly because of the um, some of the products that we move around a lot, like timber, soil, uh, just in the old packaging, um, ants are very industrious and flexible, particularly these invasive species, and they are literally in everything and everywhere. In fact, the only continent on the world where they're not present is Antarctica. That's just because it's too cold. So wherever you are in the world, you will find ants, and therefore there will always be the opportunity for ants to be in products that we move around. And as people now, we move around a lot of stuff all around the world. Uh, and it's actually really amazing to know just how many things are being moved around uh, the planet at any particular time. It's it's really amazing that we don't have a lot more things um, establishing everywhere all the time. Um, but ants are particularly good. And another thing that makes them so successful is probably their sociality. So it's not that individuals matter, it's the colonies that matter. And there's a great diversity on how ants reproduce, be it just by one queen or some workers can contribute to the reproduction, or they can become queens, etc. There's so many flexible strategies, and a lot of these make it very amenable for ants to become highly invasive, more so than, than other types of invertebrates. What kinds, I mean, I, I'm sure there's thousands of different species of ants, so which ones are more invasive than others and why? Is it just their behavior or circumstance or what they eat or... Yeah, so this is a science focus at the moment. We, we sort of have a, an understanding of it, but it's certainly not a very strong understanding. 
And you know, even just to go to the basics, we really don't even know how many uh, species of ant there are out there in the world. So if you read the books right now, it'll say about 10,000 species. My personal opinion is that it's about 30,000 species. And of 90% of those species, we know absolutely nothing of them. So there's no way in the world that we could do a, a comprehensive study of why one species is invasive and another one isn't. And also on, add on top of that, there's also the requirements of, of chance of them getting into our transportation system in the first place. So most of these native ant species around the world just haven't yet had the opportunity to become invasive. So our understanding might change. But what we find is those that are in the system are typically very adaptable to different settings. Uh, so they don't have very thinly defined habitat requirements. They're typically not specialised um, feeders, such as predatory ants. Uh, they would be generalist omnivores. And typically, they'll also get a lot of their resources from carbohydrates. So these are sugars that you can get from plants and also bugs. So ants farm bugs like we farm cows. And those the ants that are more successful at doing this will have a very large supply of an energy-rich resource that they can then build up their populations, and essentially you get a, a population explosion. Um, we find that these species will also have high reproductive outputs, so they will send out not just a few queens each season, but they can send out literally thousands and thousands. Uh, many of them are disturbance specialists, which of course makes them um, very suitable for living in human environments, quite often highly aggressive. So if you want to be the new kid on the block, you need to be able to remove some of the, the species that are present. And these species are often so successful that they will remove almost every other ant species that are, that are present. So those are just a few characteristics. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more, but, but those are the, the most important ones. Well, I was going to ask you, when ants are invasive, do they target other ants or they target larger creatures? Like what kind of uh, creatures suffer because of them when they invade? Yeah, so if you can imagine that there's a full spectrum of these ants, let, let's just start by saying that ants that get moved around by people a lot are successful. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will have an, an impact at all. So many of them are quite benign and they will just occupy places. Uh, they will be seen. They've, they've naturally expanded their range. And these are just what we call tramp species. So they just move around. The word for invasive species is more or less reserved for those that have impacts, and those impacts can be on people through social amenity in any way, including health, typically environmental impacts by removing other native species, but also agricultural impacts. They can affect crops and um, animals and the likes. Um, so there's a full spectrum, and that includes the impacts as well. And what we also find is that the smaller the ant is, um, typically, the bigger the impacts it can have. And it comes down to numbers, essentially. The smaller species tend to have higher numbers, and it's much easier to be overwhelmed by a large number of small things um, than what it is than just a few big things. And if you think about it, you know, if you're out in the, in, in the bush, if you're engaged with one dog, you can move away from that. But if you've got a 1,000 mosquitoes, you're in trouble. So give me one dog any day over a 1,000 mosquitoes. And it's the same thing for ants in the environment. And when you have absolutely huge numbers of very small ants, that's where you have your biggest, biggest impacts. And we've documented that many times where there's been pretty much a complete extirpation of, of native ants from entire 
uh, ecosystems and also massive declines in, um, in other invertebrates, especially specialised ones. And Hawaii is a fine example of that where we've probably got invertebrate extinctions that haven't been recorded because we didn't even get to find the native invertebrates in the first place before the ants took over. Well, do will ants like swarm and eat mice or what? Like that's not an invertebrate, but like what will they they eat besides other ants? Or what will they consume? They're omnivores and they're aggressive and they're invasive. Yeah, so most of their food resources literally are liquids. It's liquid sugars. If it's not that, then it would be more specialized food like plant seeds. So fire ant, for example, are actually um, seed harvesters. But protein is only needed for the developing larvae. So the adult ants themselves don't really eat protein. And so they don't need that much. And they're not necessarily going out trying to kill everything that's in sight. More often than not, particularly for the larger animals like young birds, hatching turtles, defenceless young vertebrates, it's more accidental. So a case in point here would be Christmas Island where about 10% of the red land crab populations, there's about 20 million red land crabs, have been killed by yellow crazy ants. And it's not that yellow crazy ant goes out looking for the crabs to kill them. It's just that in certain areas, the population of the ant is so high that as the crabs are stumbling through there, the ants get agitated, they will spray a formic acid, and that gets into the, uh, the crabs' eyes and their gills, and the poor crabs just go blind and and suffocate to death, essentially, which then becomes the meal for the ants. But the, the end result is the same thing. It's, it's the death of these organisms. Are there people within the ant world that study, you know, how ants coordinate to attack? Do you? You know, what kind of signals do they send to each other and how do they coordinate attacks? And, you know, yeah, absolutely. So that, that's, yeah, so that's not my specialty, but it's certainly in these scenarios, and it's different for different um, species, ants communicate via chemical communication. And so you will either, in an instant where an ant is agitated, it will send, send off an alarm pheromone and other ants will come running toward it. They won't, won't necessarily know what they're defending against and it would typically be for other, other ant species they are trying to defend their, their territory. So there's uh, alarm pheromones that will recruit. Other species will get a food and they'll, they'll think to themselves, I want to bring my nest mates back here and they will lay a trail all the way back to the nest and they will then communicate that to the, the nest mates and the nest mates will then follow that trail back to the food resource. They may not necessarily know what that food resource is. I'm not too sure if they can communicate that, um, but they will recruit uh, that way. And in other instances, I'm sure there's many other types of communication because there's especially communication between the queens and the workers of what the queen wants, especially, for example, if she wants food, uh, and the like. So yes, there is a lot of ant communication, but probably less so than what we're thinking here of wars and killing other animals in the environment. That's more or less chance. And if you're just another little invertebrate running around, you're just going to have a chance interaction with an ant and you're suddenly going to be attacked because the ants will attack anything. If you're an ant, there will always be a defensive reaction uh, because invasive ants don't like other ants in their habitat because, of course, they're competing for resources, be that space, food, anything. So these invasive ants are highly aggressive towards anything and they will kill intentionally or unintentionally anything that they come across. And anything that dies uh, becomes a food resource, which then builds up the population and the cycle continues. And you, 
essentially just end up with these massive populations that are out of control, which makes them a, a real science um, question. Well, how do you intervene if you're called in? Is there anything you can do? There's an invasion of ants in a particular area and they call you in. What can you do to stop it? Yeah, so it's a complex answer. So it all depends on whether we're dealing with a human environment or a natural environment, whether we have non-target species that we uh, want to protect uh, or if we can just do a, a clean sweep of an area. So you know, back in the good old days, if, if we can call them the good old days, you can just whip out a spray and you can just spray the entire area and literally everything will die. It's like a nuclear bomb going off with a general insecticide. Um, that's not the way that we like to do things these days. Uh, that's certainly effective. The challenge these days is removing the ants from any environment without causing any other harm to the environment. And there's many products out there that will kill ants, but they're always general insecticides. At this point in time, we don't have such a thing as an ant-only insecticide. And so there's, there's always some trade-off between the product that's being used and the potential for environmental contamination or, or non-target impacts. But the, there's a great diversity of ways in which it's done. I'm still using um, sprays in some instances. And so a fine example would be a port facility in a city. Um, we really want those to be sterile zones anyway to stop species from moving around. But when we get into the, the higher conservation areas, this is where we will be using granular products that are far more targeted towards ants or other products. Uh, there's a new one called hydrogels, which we can deliver just a few times. And predominantly, it's only the ants that will take it. Uh, and we can eliminate ants from uh, entire environments and then see those environments recover um, quite quickly. So it, it's possible but we're still only really achieving this on relatively small scales. So most of the world's ant eradications to date are of the scale of less than one hectare. The largest one, uh, at least in, in modern terms, using these modern products, is about 8,300 hectares. I'm not sure what that is in acres. Just uh, multiply that by 2.2. So it's 16,000 acres. And that's a real anomaly. That's, that's like 100 times larger than, than the next largest one. So we're, we're really in our infancy, in our ability to deal with these invasive ants. I would argue that it's down to a lot of, a lot of that restriction is down to the products that we're using. Uh, we are quite limited in trying not to have adverse effects on everything else. So in the future, uh, potentially we won't need to be so cautious and, and it will be uh, a lot easier. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, why not study the pheromones that ants use to signal other ants? You know, if there's ones that, that signal, get out of here, there's danger, maybe you can introduce yeah. that at an invasion and then you'd, you'd herd the ants to back to their nest and you can kill them. I mean, you know, ant versus ant combat, I'm sure they use chemical weapons too and not just biting each other, you know, pincering each other's heads off. Absolutely. So, what, what clues are there? Yes, I, I like the thought, and uh, it has been done. And so there's particularly there's a team in New Zealand who have really taken this up, and they can use a, a pheromone spray. And, for example, you will have a, a trail of Argentine ants on a wall, and they will use this, this pheromone spray, and it confuses the ants. They don't know where their path is, where their, where their nest is, what, where they're going, etc. and it causes complete social disruption. Now, that's fine, well, and good. We know that we can manipulate these things, 
but it doesn't result in death or not necessarily, or at least it hasn't been done yet. So yes, we can interrupt these systems. The, the secret of getting rid of these ants is eliminating the reproductives in the nest. And bear in mind, the ants that you are seeing are just the foragers, and that's just 1% of the population. 99% of them are tucked away safe in the nest. And so any treatment that's applied externally isn't going to get back into that nest and cause disruption unless it's ingested in some way. And this, this is where we need uh, a toxicant at this point as opposed to something that just causes an imbalance in communication between ants that are out foraging. Um, will they fight with others? Yes, but even ants will not fight to the um, complete extinction of the colony uh, un unless it really is a, a war to the death. And if that's the case, you know, it's the invasive species that's going to win every time. So, yeah, yes, there are many novel ideas like this um, being tried, but I think they have fairly limited utility, at least for eradicating. We, we can slow them down using something like this. Okay. I don't know. So what, are, what are some of the new tricks in your tool bag there for, uh, again, when there's invasive species in an area? Are you studying the dynamics of the invasiveness because there's not much you can do to stop them? Or like, where is your research and your insights going to come from? Well, we actually believe that the secret to dealing with these invasive species and many others is at the genetic level. So this is where we can become species specific. And it's not the genetics of you know, what potentially makes these things invasive. It's what can we interfere with that will cause death in the individual. And bear in mind, this is not genetic manipulation because we're not putting new coding into an organism. And we're particularly not doing things like putting a bit of a plant genetic material into an animal. What we want to do is understand the coding, for example, for communication, where we can insert an error via a natural means called RNA interference. And through that error, the proteins aren't produced properly, and all of a sudden the ants aren't able to communicate. So going back to your communication one, we don't need to give them something that kills them directly, but we could manipulate something in their body that indirectly kills the colony, either quickly or slowly. We can turn off their immune system. This, this has been done uh, fairly recently, uh, but it wasn't tested to see if that would result in death. We could turn off their motor neurone system, for example. There's, there's an infinite number of ways that we can interfere with the proper functioning of individuals of, of any species for this matter. Um, so another fine example of what's happening here in Australia is we have a big problem with cane toads. It's one of our public enemies, number one, for invasive species. And the idea with this technology isn't that we kill the, the, the cane toads. We just turn off the proteins that produce uh, the poison in their poison glands. And this is what's caused why the problem, why the species is so problematic, because their native species, be that goannas or crocodiles or snakes that eat these cane toads, die from the toxin and there's been massive ecological disruption because of it. If we can turn off the toxicity of the toads, they just become another frog in the environment and therefore they will become far less of a problem. And so this is the promise of this technology where we can do manipulations very humanely that, don't, that may or may not kill the individuals out in the environment. It gives us species-specific solutions and so we therefore don't need to be concerned of killing you know, native frogs or, or native ants and the likes if we can get the genetic coding to be unique to those species. So that's one fine example, and, and that's been going on for over 20 years. In fact, 
It's just nothing more than a, um, a tweak of that technology that's been used to understand how the genome systems work. It's just a question of tweaking something until we create death, for example. Other examples of technology is, believe it or not, the use of drones. So drones are, are game changers for us in terms of the environments that we can operate in. Um, quite often you'll have very rough terrain, very steep terrain, that is too difficult or too unsafe for people to work in, but it's also too small for a large helicopter to operate over or you know, there'll be infrastructure in the way, or there'll be a, a river that too finely spaced for the, in the environment for a, a helicopter to just do broad-scale treatments. And so more and more now we are using drones to do precision, precision delivery of multiple products. And as the, the drone capacities increase with their size, uh, we will very soon have a drone, for example, that will deliver a 200-kilogram payload, which is absolutely massive. You know, that we're no longer talking about little handfuls of bait on my little rotocopter drone. So as their size increases, as their complexity increases in terms of their ability to fly through environments, uh, even flying through environments autonomously, making their decisions of how they will go through that. As that increases, our ability to eradicate ants increases as well. But probably our biggest challenge is even finding ants in the first place. Um, I was going to so ask you, yeah, like do you... Do they have like a little cone with a hole when they come out of the ground or can you use thermal imaging or what can you do to see where they are? So, so this is the challenge that the entire world faces of how do you detect an ant when it first arrives to your country? And it's different for different species. Of course, there are the high-priority sites that you can search. These will be the, the facilities where freight and goods come in and get, get unpacked, etc. But even so, it takes a, quite a while for ants to become established and to become visible. Some ants will just have a small hole in the ground. It will be completely obscured. You, you won't see it. Others, after a while, will build a mound, maybe. There's a full diversity there of uh, what you can see visually, but that doesn't mean that you'll find them walking around either. So each place will have different environmental conditions and when the ants are foraging. In fact, many will only come out at night. Of course, we're not, we're not surveying for ants then. But think about this in the perspective of an eradication. Let's say that you've got an ant and you've got it through 500 acres of a very complex environment. How do you prove that every single last ant is gone? There is a lot of sampling that must go on to do that. And you know, it literally needs to cover every square inch of ground and quite often every square inch of the three-dimensional environment. And if you're talking about a rainforest, that gets very complicated. What we're using more and more these days are detector dogs. So dogs are incredibly good at sniffing out anything, be it landmines or fruits and vegetables for biosecurity. They can sniff out any ant if they're trained onto it. What, but, of course, you can't take dogs into complex environments either. Uh, even the dogs have the limitations of where they can go. And so this is where volatile technology comes into it, where we would like to see the development of machines that don't take up the size of half of a laboratory but can be held in your hand and taken out and somehow they either take live air samples or they take samples that can be then taken back to a laboratory and they literally sniff out the volatiles of the ant that the dogs would otherwise smell and we can detect for presence or absence. This type of thing is happening um, already but very slow to progress for, for many reasons but we'll certainly see... Um, 
essentially ant sniffing technology uh, in the future being a great use the, at the borders for biosecurity to prevent stuff from coming in the first place, from finding it early and then demonstrating that, that something has been eradicated. So dogs are pretty good at smelling ants, pheromones or other chemical releases? Absolutely. So you'll, you'll see dogs used absolutely everywhere for all sorts of purposes, be it with the military, for wildlife conservation. We use them a lot over here for tracking down koalas, for example, to make sure that they're not in the way of any sure. land use activities. And we now have teams of dogs in Australia for about four or five different ant species that are currently undergoing eradication. Um, so ants have been a, a not ants, dogs have been a fantastic uh, new tool in their weaponry against ants over, over the last 20 years. And uh, I'm sure we will see more and more dogs being trained up for use all around the world for many more purposes uh, as time goes on. What about bees? Can bees, do bees interact with ants very much? And can they be used to, uh, I, don't, I don't know what they would do or how they would signal, but could they be used to find ants? Believe it or not, they, they absolutely can. And in fact, again, in New Zealand, they have, or well, a research team has trained bees to find, I think it was Argentine ants again. It might have been another species as well. And using some method that I'm not familiar with, they train the bees to find the ants and just hang around and hover there. And they work very effectively. Um, the problem is finding your bees after you've released them. So you can have them at one point and the bee will is quite capable of flying very large distances. And so it's one thing to have the bees finding the ants somewhere, but then you have to find those bees. And so at this point in time, they're not being used on in any real program, but, but they certainly do have great potential. Interesting. What else do you see as the future of your research? Like what, uh, you know, you mentioned using dogs, uh, better finding of the ant nests, and if they're in cargo, that's going to be transported overseas. But like what other areas uh, do you think it would really be important to advance your research? Oh, my goodness. It's, uh, it's mind-blowing to even think about this because there, there's so much but the, the nice thing is that ants are absolutely at the forefront of, of biosecurity for the world. So there's a lot that can be done with ants that will then flow through to all, all the other taxa and preventing other taxa from moving around. And so finding ways of manipulating our own goods, for example, and just think of um, shipping containers. We need to work out how to make shipping containers far less viable for ants to either be in them or far easier to detect ants in them. And so we need to understand the ant volatile systems a lot more. We need to understand um, how ants survive in these hostile environments. Bear in mind they could be at sea for weeks at end in all sorts of conditions, what are their thermal tolerances, uh, etc., so that we can understand how they become invasive in the first place um, so that we can stop that. Just thinking of the genetics of, of ants is absolutely astronomical. We're only dealing with a handful of species at the moment and you know, the, the genome is so large, I, do, I don't even understand the, the genetics of all this. I, I, I use other genetic specialists, but there is so much that we will glean from genetic knowledge of absolutely everything that we probably oh. can't even think of at this point in time of you know, potentially what we could do. Yeah, we're, oh, we're, we're probably... Yeah. Are there ant traps you can make? Like, what's what's the most delicious, enticing food on earth known to an ant? You know, what if you had little cartridges of this stuff and you're going to inspect a container and you know within 15 minutes you'll get a response if there's ants there and you put this little cartridge of stuff 
you know, right near the container and the ants will either come out or not. Maybe that's the best way is entice them out instead of trying to invasively scan and find them. Well, believe it or not, the Australian government just held a competition last year to build uh, a better ant trap for exactly this reason, uh, because the Australian government wants better ways to be able to detect ants in, in the first instance. And so there was no shortage of ideas that were um, proposed. That, again, we're talking about ants is not talking about birds or fish. There's just this incredible diversity. And so there is no such thing as one size fits all. What you need is a diversity of products and traps, etc., for an entire suite of different um, abilities of the ants. If there was one thing that I would say that most ants would probably come to, believe it or not, it's canned fish. Now, even though there's no evolutionary link between ants and fish, uh, for some reason, ants really like the oils from fish. And so a, a bait that is slightly liquidy and contains fish oil more often than not be an absolute winner. And maybe there's more volatiles in fish that track the ants. Um, who knows? But again, other, others are specialised seed harvesters, so they need seeds. Others are specialist predators and they want small springtails and things like that. Um, but you know, many ants are also not walking around. They, they'll only be in soil, for example, or a substrate or inside the wood. So how do you attract those ants out to a, to a bait or a trap? I don't have the answers at this point. It's a great science question and there's lots of good minds um, throwing all sorts of ingenious ideas uh, at, at this problem. Interesting, yeah. One of the really interesting things for me is just, just how many ant species are out there and building that up into better profiling which species could become invasive so that we have them on our radar and gaining more of a predictive understanding um, of, it, of invasiveness in general. Taxonomy really isn't happening, happening much these days. So we're, we're still finding ants, but none of them are getting names. And so the, the ant collection that I help curate here in Darwin is the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. We have over 10,000 species in this collection alone. And I would say that maybe 2% of those species have names. So, you know, I would love to see the science return back to sorting out even what is a species. Um, even that's a, a lot of guesswork at this point in time. Um, why, are they so, not, yeah. why are they not named? Um, because of, of limited funding, I guess. And one of the, the, the opinions, I guess, is unless a species is problematic and we need to deal with it, just giving something a name has no practical purpose. Now, I would completely disagree with this, um, but it is a very big job naming a species you you need to go through incredible detail to detail what that species is how it's different from all the others proving that it is a species i would i would argue that in the collection that we have alone even at a, in a best time frame it would take over a hundred years for a team of people to name the species that we have there and you know, yeah. build it up onto a, a global scale there's a, a massive science job and so maybe genomics will help us out with this a lot more where we, this can be done a lot more rapidly using non-standard techniques, which are typically just morphology describing the look of the ant. Maybe we can have some well, genetic boundaries if, of what is a species. If no one's going to do it, then you should call it the uh, the Hoffman process and get first naming <laughs> rights on all these things, you know? Yes, well, if only I had some spare time, maybe I could. I'm too busy doing other things. But, uh, <laughs> there's so much to do. Very, very interesting. I didn't realize that that happens. That's weird. And look, it's not just ants. It, it's for many other things. And most of the taxonomists that are working on, particularly invertebrates these days, are retired fellows. 
I can think of really only one person in Australia left who's doing any taxonomy, apart from maybe a student here and there. Um, so, yeah, great opportunity for anybody in the world to come to Australia to do lots of taxonomy. There's a, a lifetime of work here. Yeah, interesting. Well, very good. Ben, where can we find more information about you and you know all the different ants that you work with and know of? Yeah, so a lot of my information is up on the, the website of my organisation, which, uh, or not my organisation, but an organisation I work for, which is uh, CSIRO, um, which is Australia's National Research Agency. If you just type in my name, Ben Hoffman, into the, uh, the search engine there, there, there should be a profile come up with, with my work. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure if you just typed in Ben Hoffman and ants, a lot more would pop up as well, because uh, there's a lot happening out in the media all, all the time, because we do like to talk about what we do and um, get public engagement uh, with what we do as well. Very good. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's very interesting. No problem. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.